It is Morning Edition here on NHPR. I'm Rick Ganley, and it's time for the New Hampshire News Recap. Let's get into this week's top headlines. We're well into the election season, and with the political coverage dominating the news cycle, this week we've decided to focus on some other top stories from around the state. Don't worry, there will be plenty of election coverage coming your way in the next few weeks. Joining us now to catch us up on the latest news in education is NHPR's Sarah Gibson. She's on by Zoom this morning. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. Good to have you. Thanks so much for the time. So, Sarah, the first official complaint against a teacher for violating New Hampshire's so-called divisive uh, divisive concepts law has been filed with the state. That law was passed just over a year ago. Can you remind us what it does? Sure. So it prohibits uh, teaching that a person of one group is inherently racist, superior or oppressive to other people, either unconsciously or consciously. Uh, And it prohibits a a bunch of other things. um, And one can look at at the law online if you're if you're curious, we've also linked to it. Uh, But it was basically passed as part of an effort uh, over a year ago by conservative lawmakers to curb diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives at schools and and for them to have a little bit more say in basically curriculum and classroom discussions on race and the legacy of American racism, which people, uh, you know, may recall was front and center and has been, um, you know, for, for a number of years now, particularly after the murder of George Floyd. It does not prohibit teaching about slavery, about Black Lives Matter, about other topics that can be contentious or make students or teachers uncomfortable. Uh, so it is, uh, it's been on the books, as you said, for over a year, but this is the first uh, complaint we've heard of the uh, Human Rights Commission investigating. And they're saying it could, it could have a chilling effect. They're challenging this law in court, this teacher's union and a group of public school employees. What did they have to say in, 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 in the case? So, as you said, they they basically say it's had a a chilling effect on classroom discussions, and their argument uh, centers around a couple of real legal things that uh, are are a little challenging for the layperson and for a reporter like myself to understand. But basically, the, the, the heart of it is that they say the wording of the law is so vague that teachers don't actually know how to abide by it. Um, and that they're, as a result, avoiding certain classroom discussions. And they allege that, therefore, it violates uh, teachers' do right, uh, their kind of do right process, uh, and also their free speech. Uh, those are the kind of the, the main cruxes of the argument that were discussed in the hearing last week. So the state has asked the court to dismiss the case entirely. What's their argument? Yeah, the state says that guided the law itself, uh, and then subsequent guidance that came from the attorney general's office several times sufficiently explains what teachers can and can't be taught. Basically, the state doesn't buy that teachers continue to, to not know what classroom discussions are, are allowed. They've also cited case law um, that teachers as public employees don't have the same level of free speech protections uh, while they're on the job that they do, say, outside of the job or that we do as private citizens. So that's in the courtroom. But Sarah, how is this affecting teachers and students? Have you talked to some? I have. It's, yeah, it's been interesting because as as some people, you know, in the in the both political and, and school realms may recall, a year ago, it was a big source of confusion and conversation. So, um, you know, as I was asking schools how they were opening up, what they were contending with, what was on the minds of teachers, this was certainly one, you know, everyone, most people got, you know, some kind of training on what they could and could not uh, teach in their classrooms. 
And there were a lot of um, inquiries to both schools as well as the Department of Education and the Human Rights Commission about, you know, is this thing that my, my child is being taught, does it violate the new law? Uh, so it was, it was pretty hot last year. I have not encountered it as, um, you know, high on the list of priorities or concerns among teachers this year. Uh, here's what I heard from Jackie Coe. She's a superintendent um, at SAU 24, which is in Henniker. I don't feel like the, the divisive concept law is on the forefront right now. We're not getting those inquiries like we were. And I think teachers are feeling more comfortable that what they were doing before was okay and, and they can continue to do it. That, that's interesting, Sarah. Yeah. And, you know, it's particularly interesting in that district because that's a district um, that, in fact, you know, material that had been taught in that district, it was highlighted uh, not only by parents expressing concern last year, uh, but it was highlighted by the Department of Education, in fact, in a, a large document published uh, th this past spring that got a lot of attention, um, basically saying that some teachers were, uh, I, I, I forget the, the wording, but raising concerns about uh, curriculum content and teachers essentially teaching values that conflicted with the values of, of families. And so there was, in fact, curriculum and, and classroom uh, content highlighted by the Department of Education from this district saying, uh, you know, this is this could be of concern. However, at the end of the day, it didn't rise to the level of a complaint investigated by the Human Rights Commission, as far as we know, because that, along with a bunch of other concerns raised by teachers, has yet to lead to um, you know, a meaty complaint that the, that the Human Rights Commission says it's in fact investigating. And so even though there has been um, you know, much discussion about it, a lot of inquiries about, about what curriculum uh, is allowed, and you know, even though some teachers say they, they really feel more targeted because of this law, again, there just hasn't been, um, you know, there have not, teachers have not been losing their licenses as a result of this law, nor does there seem to have been um, you know, a number of, of complaints investigated and hearings made that, that some people were, were fearing. Uh, it, it really is up to, to the judge to figure out if, as, as teachers allege, as this group of teachers allege, it's still having a chilling effect such that it, um, it, it's illegal. So we're still waiting on that. And frankly, that lawsuit uh, could take a while. And HBR's education reporter, Sarah Gibson. Sarah, thank you. You're welcome. It is Morning Edition here on NHPR. We're recapping this week's news. If you've got some questions about what's going on in the state, you can email us and help inform our reporting. The email is voices at nhpr.org. We always want to hear from you. Joining us now to talk about the latest news in health and equity is NHPR contributor Paul Kuno Booth. Good morning, Paul. Morning. Paul, the, the fall season officially here, which means flu season is right around the corner. We're hearing a lot about that this morning, in fact, that it could be a tough season. State health officials encouraging folks to get their flu vaccine. I know you heard from officials that this could be one of the worst flu seasons in several years. Why is that? Yeah, so we had two years of extremely low flu activity, actually, in the last two years. Um, that's largely because all these steps we took to fight the spread of COVID, masking, social distancing, and so forth, of course, also helps uh, slow the spread of other diseases like flu. So um, after two pretty low seasons, uh, with a lot of those restrictions gone, um, it, it's likely that we'll have more activity. 
Uh, it's also been, you know, two years of um, lower exposure to the flu. So, so our natural immune defenses may be um, a little weaker. So officials are encouraging people to get flu shots. Um, you know, in a typical season, flu kills tens of thousands of Americans. So um, it is a disease to be taken seriously and um, get vaccinated against. And of course, you see much more, uh, many more people, uh, kids in school, obviously this fall and people, less people wearing masks and so on. So there's just more transmission going around. Absolutely. Now, I know state health officials are also encouraging folks to, to make sure they get updated COVID booster shots. How are, how are those different from the boosters that we saw last year? Yeah, so these are the first boosters um, since the original vaccine to be updated with protection against new variants, new strains of the virus that are currently circulating. Um, so the idea is this helps uh, protect you better against the version of the virus that is causing those cases now. Um, and also just by teaching your um, body to, to sort of recognize more different types of the coronavirus, um, there's hope that it will sort of um, provide broader protection against new variants going forward. Um, you know, these boosters are available in many places in New Hampshire now, and you can get them at the same time as your flu shot. And, and these updated boosters are, as you said, they're available in many places. You can go to pharmacies and your healthcare provider. But the state is also planning to relaunch that mobile vaccine van program that they had last year. Can you tell us more about that? That's right. So we're at this kind of interesting moment in the response to the pandemic where a lot of it has shifted more to the, the private healthcare system. You know, you're, you're seeing a lot of um, testing, vaccinations, things like that, moving from these kind of big, you know, public sites or public response we had earlier in the pandemic to, as you said, pharmacies, um, doctor's offices. Um, there are some concerns among uh, public health people that um, you know, some harder to reach groups or groups with uh, less healthcare access um, may not, um, you know, have as ready access to the vaccine. So this is one way that the state is trying to hopefully address some of those gaps, um, you know, send mobile clinics to uh, community events, to workplaces, really to, to where people are so that if someone has some kind of barrier, transportation, they live far from their nearest pharmacy, whatever it is, um, to hopefully get that that vaccine in front of them. There is also a van that can make visits to homebound individuals, uh, again, to make sure that the vaccine makes it to them. I want to ask you, too, about uh, New Hampshire officials proposing to use uh, $15 million in federal funds to spur the development of a new mental health hospital. Uh, where would that hospital be located, Paul, and, and how many beds could it could it provide? So we don't actually know the exact location yet, um, but it's proposed to be somewhere in South Central New Hampshire. Um, the, the plans I've seen call for 130 beds. This would be, um, you know, various different units um, for youth, for adults, geriatric unit, um, unit for uh, co-occurring mental health and substance use disorders. Um, but that would be a big uh, boost to the, the state's inpatient mental health capacity. Yeah, the state has is, is long struggled with that shortage of inpatient psychiatric care. So officials, I, I imagine, hoping that this, this is a solution. Yeah, and um, it's certainly much, much needed from the advocates I've spoken to. You know, we have a lot of people who uh, still wait in emergency rooms, waiting for beds to open up. Uh, it's not the only piece. Uh, officials were saying just this week that many of the beds at their current uh, New Hampshire hospital are not being used because of staffing shortages. So again, the workforce problem in the mental health sphere um, is another um, piece that needs to be solved, but but certainly a big step. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're taking steps for that, but uh, this is this is something that could take time. Yeah, I think um, uh, 2024 is um, the estimated timeline at this point. 
I want to circle back one one quick question for you, Paul, about uh, vaccines. Uh, more people now eligible to get the monkeypox vaccine here in New Hampshire. Who's eligible and, and where can they get that? Yeah, um, the state says, you know, uptake of this vaccine has been pretty low and there's a lot of supply now. So um, the state's broadened it, among others. Um, anyone whose healthcare provider thinks they're at risk can now get the vaccine, as well as any men who have sex with men and believe themselves to be at risk. Um, so it's pretty widely uh, available at convenient MD locations and others. And, you know, some um, healthcare providers told me they really think this will uh, help kind of lower barriers and also just reduce the stigma around the disease. The the previous categories were much, much narrower. Paul Kuno Booth covers health and equity here at NHPR. Paul, thanks so much. Thank you. You can find more of his work and, in fact, all the stories that we talked about this morning at nhpr.org. While you're there, we suggest you also check out the New Hampshire News Quiz. It's a quick, fun, and informative way to test your knowledge of the week's news. If you listen to Morning Edition each day, I'm sure you'll do just fine with it. You can sign up to get the quiz emailed to you, or you can check it out every Thursday evening. It's fresh at nhpr.org quiz. And we'll be here next Friday with more top headlines, as always. I'm Rick Ganley. This is NHPR.